welcome to Worst Bestsellers, where we read about Southern fried love and murder so you don't have to. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And for this episode, we read Carnal Innocence by Nora Roberts. Joining us to discuss this early 90s thriller are self-proclaimed Nora Roberts experts and co-hosts of the Romancing the Shelf podcast, Heidi and Emily. Hi, Heidi. Hello. And hello, Emily. Hello. Thank you both for joining us. This is a a long-awaited crossover episode. Very exciting. Yeah, so excited. As listeners of Worst Bestsellers know, like a few years ago, we got turned on to Nora Roberts, and we immediately were like, oh, this is so much better than the books we normally read. Can we just transition and be in all Nora Roberts podcasts? And then some of our listeners were like, no, Heidi and Emily beat you to it. And we're like, uh, they're <laughs> smart. <laughs> they're so smart. <laughs> when we were talking about doing a podcast, I kept recommending your episodes to Heidi. Be like, look, they do a book podcast. We could do a Nora Roberts podcast. So thank you, guys. Yeah. Yes, we're, we're achievable role models. <laughs> <laughs> you, like, you, listen, us. <laughs> you listen to radio and you're like, I can't do a radio lab. I could do this. <laughs> Uh, Before we get too carried away, let's not forget to do our content warnings because this book has a bunch of them. A bunch. So we're probably not going to talk about them too much in detail because that's not really the kind of show that we are. But the book has pretty much everything. It's got sexual assault, murder, suicide, uh, aggressive racism and hate crimes and child abuse. I think that's mostly it. There's like some low-key animal cruelty yeah we probably definitely won't talk about that yeah not just like violent racism but like lots of casual racism as well there's a lot of racism yeah micro and macro aggressions yeah yes nora roberts uses the n-word like a lot it's like nora i don't think so (laughs) yeah i mean it was a different time this book came out in 91 yeah yeah yeah, we can dig into it because I know Nora is generally like a pretty progressive person. And I feel mm-hmm. like at this time, she kind of probably felt like I'm making a statement about racism. And reading it now, it's like, well. Yeah, because to be clear, it's used a lot, but it's used like this like evil character who is unquestionably like a terrible asshole villain abusive lunatic and then also another character who is very clearly like a terrible villain who we are supposed to hate but still like mm, it's not it's not we'll get we'll get into it we'll get into it that i feel very very weird saying this after saying that but 90 percent of this book without the like weird racism c-plot I fucking loved. Unsurprisingly, <laughs> as we start to talk about it, y'all be like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. We <laughs> This one is complicated. And so mm-hmm. I never know how people are going to receive it. I've had friends who hate it and people who like it. So <laughs> I feel like when you, Heidi and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, about what Nora books you recommend to like new Nora readers and carnal innocence is not like, I wouldn't hand this as to somebody to be like, here's your introduction to Nora Roberts, because I feel like she has other Southern thrillers that are better, but this one is super interesting in the context of the rest of Nora's like body of work, which is what Heidi and I kind of talk about a little bit more in our podcast because we're reading them in chronological order. So 
it holds a special place in the way that Nora's writing is evolving, but this is not someone's first Nora Roberts, I wouldn't say. Right. Yeah, I mean, basically anything where a bunch of people are solving a murder and also falling in love, like, checks most of my boxes. (laughs) I also found this one, like, legitimately funny in multiple places on purpose, which I do love that, too. (laughs) Yeah, I... I liked this more than I liked Brazen Virtue, for sure. Yeah, this one has more more to it, I think, than Brazen Virtue. I also think there's more romance in this one. There's still romance is still to the side generally in Carnal Innocence, but I think even more so in Brazen Virtue is to the side. She's she's dealing with a lot, so Ed's just uh, on the side. <laughs> when we read Brazen Virtue, we talked about how. Like, their whole romance happens while she's in the, like, beginning throes of her grief of her sister's murder. Like, that's not really the best time to be like, oh, new boyfriend. So, <laughs> it it's, de- like, this book, there's some weird parts, but they've already kind of established their romantic relationship by the time they're, like, face-to-face with murderous death. So. True. Yeah, it felt like there are terrible things going on in this town, which we'll, I'm sure, get into momentarily. But it did feel like this was happening kind of like alongside it, like parallel to it, as opposed to like in the middle of it, which I think part of that is because this had so many, like we've talked before on our show quite a bit about how Nora is incredibly gifted at switching POVs in one book in a way that's not as confusing as it can be with a lot of other authors who attempted and don't establish character as well as she does. Mm -hmm. So I think because we get to have all of these like POVs all across the town of what's going on, it doesn't necessarily feel like Caroline and Tucker, who are our romantic protagonists, are necessarily in the middle of everything as it's happening. Like, I think it's more believable that they are having this like relationship that's going on while all these other things are going on, even though they are involved in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so uh, glad to hear you guys talk about the POV in your other episode because you're just so right. She, she is like a master, you know, one sentence in and you know, you're in someone else's head and it's just so impressive. Yeah. So do we want to get into this book? Let's do it. All yeah. right. So this one starts off with a prologue from not our main characters. Uh, In fact, it is from the perspective of a teen boy who is walking around pretty cranky about having gotten dumped and thinking about how he's going to make his life better and he's going to leave their shitty little town in the middle of nowhere and go to a big city and make a lot of money and make his ex-girlfriend super jealous and... It's going to be great until he, in the pond he is fishing in, discovers a dead corpse. By the way, I should say the town that they're in is called Innocence, Mississippi, hence the title kind of Carnal Innocence. And I do feel like one thing Carnal Innocence has in common with Brazen Virtue is these are two like word salad titles. Like this doesn't mean anything. Like the town is named Innocence. Okay. Like. I don't know, just like carnal innocence. That's not, that's nothing. This was a hallmark of her whole 90s. There was divine (laughs) evil, honest illusions, private scandals. It was just like, I don't know, they were like oxymorons, yay. And they just like (laughs) threw them through of all these titles together. 
Yeah, so that's that's our prologue. That's where we first enter Innocence, Mississippi. And then we switch over to some other folks who are here in Innocence. And we meet all of our uh, main characters. The first line of the first chapter I pulled out because I thought it was very good. Summer, that vicious green bitch, flexed her sweaty muscles and flattened Innocence, Mississippi. That's great. So the the main character is that vicious green bitch, Summer. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Also the Longstreets, who are uh, the kind of like premier family of Innocence. They own like basically all the businesses and all the houses. They like are the Richie Riches. And we get information on the three siblings who are currently of like this generation of ruling long streets and there's Dwayne who is the oldest son and who his character trait is alcoholic his character trait is alcoholic he was under a lot of pressure from his father to like take over the business and so he got a girl pregnant and married her but his drinking just got worse and worse they got into a lot of fairly violent not necessarily like didn't hit his wife or kids but he did throw a lot of things and make a lot of noise and was very angry so she left with the kids and now he's just kind of sunken into an alcoholic funk there is Josie who is is she the middle or the youngest she's the youngest yeah so she's the youngest she is very flighty very sexy very flirty with the guys around town she's a horny queen she is a horny queen, yes. And then we've got Tucker, who is the middle brother. And he's, like, cool and hip. And, like, no woman can settle down with him. But he's also, like, smart and kind. And he's the run- one who actually runs all the businesses. And, like, takes care of all the matters. And, you know, makes sure the town is still running. But he can't be conquered by any woman because he's above that. He just, like, he likes being with women. But he can't be shackled down by a woman. If I may, who Tucker is to me and, like, why I like Tucker so much is, like, the part of me that as a child watching the X-Men animated series, like, imprinted on Gambit from the X-Men, that part is, like, oh, Tucker. Tucker is my new Gambit. Yes. He's that minus, like, the cards and, like, the gambling and the crimes. But other than that. And the, like, sometimes, like, Creole accent that he puts on right Mm, i didn't listen to the audiobook so in my head tucker did have that accent but i don't think that's canonical (laughs) i I mean that accent's more like louisiana and this is mississippi this is a totally different state (laughs) i said it wasn't canonical but the heart wants what the heart wants (laughs) i almost feel like tucker is like a historical romance hero like a regency or where they own things and they have money but they don't actually do work And if Mm -hmm. anybody knew that Tucker was doing all this work, he would be, like, mortified that people know that he works for a living. Mm -hmm. So he needs to, like, show I have all these things, but I don't put in any effort to maintain them. But he really does. He's strangely obsessed with wanting people to think he's lazy. It it was weird to me. It made it sometimes for me, like, why does Caroline like him so much? Because she's so ambitious and she is so accomplished. And then here's this guy who's like, my greatest accomplishment is – I lay in this hammock all day long and look really good doing it. And so it was a little tricky for me to understand why Caroline was like, he was charming, but that charming? Oh, no. Yeah. A of all, yes, he was that charming. B, I think the, <laughs> I think the, 
I think the word like he's a rake. He's a rake. Mm. He's like a classic rake. And I mean, Caroline, we'll get into it, but Caroline at first doesn't like him because he's lazy. And then she sees him using a computer and she's like, oh my God, I'm so horny now. Like you have <laughs> she a computer. She sees him wearing glasses, right? He has like yeah. little like, and she's like, that's it. That's what I want. Which I mean, come on. He yeah, she's like, like oh my God, now. Tucker, like show me your spreadsheets. And he's like, oh, these? No, it's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we get we get the Longstreet siblings also at their house, which is called Sweetwater, is Della, who is their housekeeper, who kind of took care of them all as kids and is now like still on at the house as a housekeeper and kind of mother hens them now in their adulthood. And then we also get Caroline, who, as I'm sure you could figure out from us talking about it, Caroline is the female love interest protagonist. Caroline's a very famous violinist. She has played all over the world. She recently had a mysterious breakdown that she vaguely refers to about how she had to be hospitalized in Toronto. So she's taking time off from performing and from touring, and she's coming to stay at her recently deceased grandmother's house, which she inherited, question mark? Yeah, yeah. Like, that was sort of the impetus, was the lawyers were like, hey, like, skip to your parents, and you inherited this house. And she was like, great, I'm going. By the way, her grandmother was Edith McNair, and so sometimes people will call it like Edith's house or the McNair house, but her name is Caroline Waverly, so I think that they should rename her house Waverly Place, but, <laughs> but they didn't. That's just my fan fiction. They, they totally should have. I think the most important thing in this book to know about Caroline is that she's a Yankee. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's why they would never name it Waverly Place because it's from her yes. Yankee side. Yes, <laughs> true. That would never yeah. fly. Yeah, she. So even though her grandparents and her mother was raised in this small town, Caroline was born after her mother left and like refuses to acknowledge this place. So she's a Yankee, which is brought up a lot, a lot, a lot. It's her defining characteristic, besides <laughs> being a woman, is that she's a Yankee woman. So we meet Caroline and Caroline meets Tucker when she is driving up to the house uh, to start her break from her life. And she sees a fancy type of car that I already forgot what it was because I don't care about cars. I think he has a Porsche. Maybe. I think so. And she has a BMW. Yes. But it's going 90 miles an hour down the road, she claims, and like almost hits her and she could have died. And then it takes off again. And she's so mad at whoever's driving this car. How dare. Mm -hmm. I think he does that like really obnoxious, like friendly, like beeping of his horn, like, oh, sorry, but not sorry. And like flies on by and she's like, what the hell? But that's the thing, too. They have this like clash of culture because he does what's considered like the friendly southern beep. And she thinks he's like honking at her in a New England style. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) They're speaking different car languages from the very beginning. Yeah. Gosh, so much happens in the first chapter. I'm like looking at the notes. I'm like, oh, this is all still chapter one. So, like, after Tucker zooms by Caroline so rudely, he goes to the Chat and Chew, which is the town's one restaurant that his family also owns. And there's a lot of scenes of the Chat and Chew. Like, the Chat and Chew is, like, the message board of the town where you just go to, like, receive an info dump of all the gossip. And so the gossip download that Tucker receives there is, A, that his brother Dwayne is in the holding cell for getting drunk and having a, quote, Pushy Shovey at McGreedy's, which is the name of the bar. I'm obsessed with Pushy Shovey for a fight. 
And then while he's like processing that, then his ex-girlfriend Edda Lou comes in and is like, I can't believe you dumped me because I'm pregnant. And he's like, ah, fuck. And that's a whole thing. And then here's a quote from Josie. I say she's no more pregnant than you are. Oldest female trick in the book, Tucker. Don't get your dick caught in it. <laughs> like, okay. And I, I think, too, it's, I mean, maybe we probably won't get that deep into it, but, like, it is fairly clear to the reader that Etta Lou is not pregnant from the beginning because at first she's just yelling at Tucker about how he led her on and told her they were going to get married. And he's like, I've never told any single woman ever in my life that I wanted to get married. Like, don't, don't get yeah. that straight right now. And she's like going off on him and he's unaffected by it. So then at the last minute she yells, well, I'm pregnant. <laughs> that, of course, gets his attention. Yeah, like, I'm not saying she's a gold digger, but actually I'm explicitly saying that she is a gold digger. Like, a couple chapters later, you're, like, you're in her head where she's just, like, she loves Tucker as much as she could love anyone besides herself, but she's more in love with his image, with the idea of living at Sweetwater, and she wants to drive a pink Cadillac into town and lord it over everybody. Like, those are her dreams. Yeah, and once you know later how she grew up, I mean... It's hard to fault her for not for wanting to get out of that. Absolutely. I have to say, I really respect Tucker's the like how honest he is about drawing his boundaries. That seems very progressive to me that he is very upfront with the women that he is, you know, involved with, that he is not in it for long term commitment, that he enjoys them. And while he, you know, while they are enjoying each other he's not going to be enjoying anyone else like he really is clear about those boundaries with the people that he gets involved with and you know that's what we like clear boundaries yeah clear expectations he seems to be like a good boyfriend slash lover slash hookup or whatever while they are hooking up like he talks about or he thinks about like the gifts that he bought her like he got her like nice perfume he like took her out nice places you know like he treated her real well he was just like we're never getting married and having children fyi like that's not gonna happen this is gonna happen for as long as it happens let's enjoy it and it didn't seem like the other women that we know that he has dated that they ended on bad terms so yeah. it just feels like this was Etta Lou being like, and I'm going to marry him. I'm going to be the one who who catches him. And that obviously was not not meant to be. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of like head shaking about her saying that from everyone else in town. Like she might think that, but like no one really believes he told her he would marry her because Tucker's not the marrying type and everyone knows that. Except her best friend who was like all best friends should completely on her side. Yes. True. After Tucker hears that, he's got a lot to think about. So his favorite place to think is this pond in the woods between Sweetwater and... And Waverly Place. Waverly Place. (laughs) Isn't it called McNair Pond? Yeah, the pond is called that. Which was her grandparents' name. Yeah. yeah, so she she goes he goes out to the pond and she has decided to take a walk because she used to go fishing at that pond as a kid with her grandfather. So she also like wants to scope it out and then gets really mad that there's this guy just trespassing. And he was like super angry. He thinks that it's he thinks that it's Etta Lou coming out to like have it out with him. And so he turns around like ready to like have it out with her and it's this woman and I mean, I think Caroline is the most logical and like practical person with her reactions in this 
yeah entire book she's like here's this strange man angry man and i'm now you know in the middle of this like swampy woods next to a pond this is a danger where everyone else is like oh that's just tucker he's fine (laughs) yeah and tucker's like oh sorry like your grandma didn't mind if i walked around back here and she's like well we didn't have that understanding you know like ask a bitch yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> anyway, and he's just like, "Oh, you're like you're so cute when you're mad. You're such a Yankee." And she's just like getting madder about it, which again, justified. Justified completely. I don't think so there's a way like it's scientifically acknowledged there's no way to make someone more angry than be like, oh, "You're cute when you're angry." What? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then after that, then we cut to, like, an Edelou POV where, again, we get pretty explicit confirmation that she's not pregnant and she's scheming and, like, she was, you know, horny for money. And she's gotten a note asking her to go and meet Tucker by this very pond. Then she's murdered graphically and brutally, which I did not care for. And the, you know, I, I read this through once and then I go through it again to kind of make my notes for the episode. And... When you read it the second time, A, it's it becomes clear that the murderer is described in gender-neutral terms. However, there is a, like, semi-graphic sexual assault described that, you know, I, I kind of feel like if we're doing this podcast, like, we're spoiling it. I kind of feel like we should give the killer away now because I kind of want to talk about it throughout. Okay. Yeah. So, spoilies, the killer is Josie, the sister but there is, like, again, a semi-graphic sexual assault scene where now I'm just, like, I guess she was, like, like it's talking about her body rubbing against her. Like, I guess they were, like, non-consensually scissoring. Like, I don't really know how to process the scene, like, knowing it's two women anymore. I think, I mean, they were talk of, like, to not get, like, completely graphic, there was a knife involved. And after the body is discovered and they're, like, it was obvious that she had had something inside of her so yeah i, I mean I, yeah i do think i do think she got fucked with a knife but there mm-hmm. is also slick with sweat the body rubbed against hers the body meaning josie's body uh because this is edda's point of view doing things she didn't want to believe could be done to her I, like gross anyway so mm-hmm. she is like murdered and like cut up with an with this knife and also josie drank her blood like gross like gross vampire shit but but not actually a vampire. Yeah, this this scene is terrifying. By this point in her career, Nora's just like going there with these sort of scenes in her thrillers. And this scene definitely threw me off the most in my first reading of as I continued to read the book, I felt there were so many signs that pointed to Josie, but mm-hmm. my mind would be like, but no, it's a it's a man. From this scene it made me think it was man. So, you know, well done, I guess. Yes. Yeah, misdirect accomplished. But yeah, like throughout this, I kept being like, wow, like Josie is so dark. Like I bet I was like prepared to come on this and make all these jokes about like Josie's going to start a true crime podcast and like Josie's such a murderino. She's like really into all this. And then I got to them. I was like, oh my God, like she actually is the murderer. I really didn't think Nora would go there, but she did. I think one of the things that I really liked about this book is the way that every all of the murder investigation stuff is all framed through the male perspective. So we have Nora is obviously a lady and she's writing these books, but the all of the investigators are men, the all the suspects are men, and they're the ones who are assessing the scenes 
finding out all the clues and then presenting those clues to Caroline and all the other women in the story. And then they're talking about them between each other. And so it makes it easy for the reader to also assume that the killer is a man because all these men are, you know, like these women are overpowered. They are, you know, then this horrible sexual thing happens to them. And so I think it it was a very good misdirection on Nora's part to frame everything through that male perspective. So the women are only getting it through that filter. And it also makes me wonder if there had been a lady on this investigative team or in some position of power and authority in this town, would they have been like, hey, maybe it's a woman? Because they never find any semen anywhere on, on any of them. And they're like in the woods and in the swamp. And it seems strange to me that the killer would be so meticulous. I don't know. But it just, I wonder if there had been a lady in this investigative team or in the police department somewhere, if maybe these murders would have been solved quicker, if there was another perspective introduced. I think, too, 1991 had a lot to do with it. Like, obviously, like, there's all these people who are like, oh, the new trend of true crime. And those of us who grew up watching Dateline know that it's not a new trend. But (laughs) I do think also, like, as new media has made more possibilities for people discussing and meeting and talking about murder. Mm -hmm. I think that that has made it like prior to that, there was a lot of real like, well, women can't be serial killers. Like if Reddit had been around in 91 and widely used this murders, (laughs) these murders would have been solved so fast. Yeah. (laughs) Like I, I think like the idea of a woman doing it, it was just like not, so far off the radar for so many casual readers that I think that too could have maybe like thrown an extra like, oh my God, you know, no one would have ever suspected Josie, but here we are. But yeah, so Josie did this terrible assault and murder as the last bit that we get of this section is that Caroline wakes up from a dead sleep thinking that she heard a scream and starts to panic, but then remembers like, oh, I'm not in the city. I'm at my grandparents' house. Like, I'm up in like the woods in the bayou, probably it's just an animal. It's not a big deal and rolls over and goes back to sleep. How horrifying to realize that later that like, oh, yeah, poor Carolyn. This is not the restful retreat that she thought it was going to be. No, No, it's it's dark. So the next day, Tucker's chilling out being Tucker Mm -hmm. and Etta Lou's father, Austin, shows up looking for her and he's like i have not seen her since she like yelled at me that she was pregnant and i left the restaurant like i'm not she's not here i'm not like i'll take care of her if she's pregnant like i'll make sure that kid wants for nothing but like i'm not marrying her i don't want really anything to do with her and so tucker starts fighting with him like a physical fight yes and in this fight he also starts calling tucker by his father's name by Bo. Tucker's father's name, Bo. So they have like this really intense physical fight where they beat the utter crap out of each other. And just when Tucker thinks Austin has gotten the upper hand, Della comes out with a shotgun and like tells Austin to beat it. Yeah, this is a very gun heavy book. Like, like in Adventure Zone where the first rule is everyone has a knife. The rule yeah. of carnal innocence is everyone has a gun. Yeah. <laughs> Except Caroline for the first... Mm. Like one third, half of yeah, the book, something like that. So you know she is assimilated. Yes, right. is <laughs> when she gets her gun that she p- keeps carrying around in her purse. You know the the southern roots are coming out. Yeah. So Tucker's like, well, that sucked, but he also like it pinged him that 
Austin had said, like, Edelou, I haven't seen Edelou in, like, a while. So Tucker's like, I should go tell the sheriff that, like, I'm kind of worried about Edelou now. So he goes in and he's like, listen, like, she hasn't been home. I got in a big fight with Austin about it. But, like, I am actually concerned that, like, if she's not, no one has seen her, that, like, maybe something has happened to her because of all, what with the murders that have been happening. <laughs> which what with no the murders? One- when when these women when this woman disappears like no one seems to think like oh what with the murders we should be much more concerned about this to the level that i think like in a small town if within the past six months like two other women and one woman from out of town have been murdered and assaulted in the same way (laughs) if a young woman went missing i would be like well shit i think it's that edelou is not particularly well liked in town And so I think if somebody who, like, if someone genuinely cared about her, they would have, you know, they would have been a little bit more insistent and then helped rally other people to be like, oh, no, we need to start checking this out right now. But she's not well liked. And it doesn't seem like, like, her dad isn't worried that she's hurt or lost somewhere. He's, his pride has been injured because his daughter has publicly announced that she's pregnant and, you know... Other than that, Austin's reputation is just stellar in town. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's worried about mm-hmm. how her pregnancy is going to reflect on him and how, you know, it gives him another chance to go and, like, have it out with the with the long streets. So it's not out of concern for Etta Lou. It's out of his own, you know, like, selfish motivations. And he's also explicitly worried that she's gone up to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. And Austin is like extremely like conservative Christian in his beliefs and his zealotry, perhaps. And uh, and to Kate's point, I think she was also speaking about like no one being that concerned about the nascent crime wave in town. But I also think the first woman, Arnett, was like sort of similarly. I don't know. The first time this happened, we thought it was a drifter, but now it's like now is when people start or like after they do find Edelou's body is I think when the town starts to get more concerned. But they still, Burke, the sheriff, his wife still says to Caroline after Edelou is found that she still thinks that it's a drifter. It's just somebody like not from town who's just like, like camping in the, the woods around town. Yeah. That's an issue that kind of continues throughout that is frustrating as a reader, but I can see how it would read as true to life in a small town where, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this whole thing where, you know, eventually, spoiler alert, they call in the feds to help them figure out what's going on. And there's a lot of like, well, we can take care of our own here. We don't need someone else to like come in and police our people. But it turns out there are a lot of people in this town who are doing terrible, awful, violent things that everyone's just kind of like, well, that's just how they are. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. There was a similar vibe in Divine Evil, you may remember, where people just kept assuming like, oh, it's just some random person who drove through. And, and I'm like, no. It's like everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Both of these, t- like in Divine Evil and in Carnal Innocence, I kept, I thought about Divine Evil a lot while reading this book. And how does anyone live in this town still? I don't right. know if it's like my own privilege that it's like well i would just move away but like how does anyone still live here yeah it's very like i guess minor spoilers for the latest scream movie uh (laughs) i was watching the latest scream movie and normally like i watch a lot of horror movies it's very easy for me to turn off my brain and be like oh okay like i don't need i can suspend my disbelief and this will be fine but like by the fifth Scream movie, <laughs> where 
they're like, yeah, there's been a hugely successful horror franchise based on all of the murders that keep happening in this town all the time. And when like the first Ghostface murder happens in the new movie, everyone's just kind of like, well, except for the people who have survived the previous killings. And I guess like part of me is like, well, now we've lived through or are living through you know, COVID times, and it's clear that people are much more likely to bury their head in the sand than other things. But I just can't imagine still living in that town all these years later, and more murders are happening. And you're just like, ah, yeah, it's the, you know, every 10 years, just a whole bunch of kids get murdered, but I don't have a teenager. So it's probably fine. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they they do talk a lot about like, for these the residents of innocence like there is a lot of like ancestral pride that gets really complicated because then you're actually talking about like confederate pride and it's Mm -hmm. like actually no thank you back to divine evil Mm. Uh, let me jump forward one half plot point they do find edelou's body in the pond uh caroline finds the body and you know calls the police like a normal person would do and Doc Shays, the town doctor, comes over with his medical bag full of heavy tranquilizers. And I like I had my eye on him because I remember in Divine Evil just being like, okay, like, I guess it's normal in a small town for a doctor to just come and tranquilize everyone every time something upsetting happens. Like, (laughs) no one seems surprised that he's doing this. And then, of course, spoilers for Divine Evil, which if you didn't listen to the episode we have discussed, as have Commencing the Child, uh, the Doctor was in on it, and the Doctor was intentionally doing this in Divine Evil. Uh, Doc Shays just does seem to be like a normal small town doctor with a bag full of tranks, I guess. I don't know if it's because, you know, we have already read Divine Evil and we talked about it, but in reading Carnal Innocence, I never liked Doc Shays as much as I liked the Doctor in Divine Evil. Like, he was so fatherly towards the main character, and he... It's Norris Tricks. That's what it was. Yeah, it's, it's Norris Tricks, yeah. And Doc Shays, you never like as much, and he, he like, drinks everybody. Every He's just, <laughs> like, handing it out. Like, somebody's like, who is warm today? He's, you need you need a tranquilizer. I'm just walking yes. down the street. Let me, let me help you out. What? Which, by the way, like, Blue Cross signed me up for that service, actually. Like, I <laughs> know. <laughs> That's but, the most unbelievable thing in this town is how willing he is to provide health. Free health care. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. that tons of people in town are not insured and he's just handing these things out. Where does he yes. get the money? Yes. Uh, you know what? Actually, probably from Tucker. There's probably, probably that's probably right. one of his one of his little secret spreadsheets. Uh, yeah, Doc Shays, I think because he doesn't actually have anything to do with the story besides like being a drug dispenser, like <laughs> he doesn't have as much of a character versus in Divine Evil. I think it was it was more of a misdirect intentionally. But yeah, Doc Chase is like nothing. Let's skip forward a little bit here. So as Renata said, Caroline calls the police. Doc Shays comes and offers to tranquilize her. She also mentions to the police that she saw Tucker out by the pond earlier that day. So Burke questions Tucker because we also find out he dated all three of the women from town who have been murdered. And Josie drops by and just gives him a casual alibi. And it's like, oh, we were playing cards all night. Like... Da, 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 da. like we were drinking and like I won like $38 off of him and whatever and Tucker says to her later like why did you say that and she's like oh because like I know you didn't do it so like it's easier to give you an alibi than for them to like spend all this time investigating you and not catching the real murderer so it's just easier this way and he's like okay that seems fine 
this happens pretty early on and I kept thinking like, ooh, this is going to come back to bite Tucker. Like they're going to find out. And, you know, I was a little worried about it. Uh, also, uh, Sheriff Burke, I think we have mentioned is like Tucker's best friend. So he's like, I know you didn't do it, but just like on paper, I got to ask you about it. I also have pulled this quote from Tucker regarding accepting Josie's fake alibi. It was easier than the truth, which was that he'd fallen asleep while reading Keats. What the hell would the boys down at the chat and shoe say if they found out he read poetry on purpose? And who'd believe him? I feel like it's the most like 90s masculine tox like toxic masculinity thing ever that like he's like, oh no, they're gonna know I read poetry. That's better than them thinking you're a murderer, dude. But he's like, mm -hmm. no. They can't know about my secret poetry obsession. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's also not a good alibi because there's no witness because he like he was alone in in bed with his book of poems. But it's, <laughs> looking back it's on it, you reaction. realize like Josie not only provided Tucker with an alibi, but she provided her own alibi. Now he's like providing hers as well. Yeah. Yes, she's smart. She's very like in a really fractured way. She's very smart, but also very chaotic. It's just. <laughs> She's a lot of things, Josie. And you kind of admire her for some of them. And then other ones, you're like, that was a little too far. Her, She's chaotic, evil, horny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think one of my favorite Josie lines, it makes it so problematic to like her because she is very, you know, um, murderous. But um, <laughs> there was a, this point where she's chatting with Tucker and she says she's going on a date with Teddy, I think, that she's trying him out for one of her friends. Because she's yeah. interested in him. And, yes. um, and Tucker's like, you're just, you're such a giver, Josie. And she's like, I know. And I just, <laughs> on one hand, I'm like, ooh, you're not a great friend, but are you a good friend? I just don't know. So we also, we meet very briefly Darlene, who is Edelou's best friend, who's like real torn up that she's dead and is 100% sure Tucker did it. And then the sheriff's wife gives Caroline some gun shooting lessons because, you know, a murder just happened right outside her house and she's really nervous about it. So she's like, okay, well, I'll teach you how to shoot and also gossip with you. And here we're also introduced to the real antagonist, not the murderer, but the biggest douchebag in this book, who is the FBI agent who is sent out to investigate all of these murders, who is like... Super duper fancy, very like looks down his nose at this small town, like very angry about having to go out in the middle of nowhere to do this with all these hicks who aren't going to be good at solving murders. And like he has no patience for this and he's already really mad about it and really like snobby and terrible. He does love Caroline's music. He is, like, a huge classical music fan, unsurprising, from this, like, stiff-shirted dude from Washington, D.C., and is obsessed with her as a performer, but he is just a jerk. Uh, obsessed with her as a performer and as a love interest. Yes. I would go so far as to say that he is less interested with her as a love interest, but as her as a performer as a love interest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he'd take the violin as, like, a second place if he needed to. <laughs> so he does he does work with burke to re-interview tucker because he has a bad feeling about tucker because he's so like those you know lazy southern stereotype and tucker probably did it and immediately hates him and then we get 
He has thoughts about about um, Agent Burns, your cat. Yeah. Duarte has arrived. He's like, oh, I hate this guy. <laughs> yes. He's he's not a fan of Agent Matthew Burns. <laughs> so we get Caroline who's like, I want to play a violin for myself because like I have a lot of emotions and this is how I deal with it. And Tucker's over her house and overhears her playing and is like, oh, like this is beautiful and wonderful. And like Caroline's, I can tell she's really special and this really means a lot to her. And then kind of like, not necessarily breaks into her house, but like knocks. She can't hear because she's doing violin. So he just comes inside and they start to argue about it. But then someone is shooting at them and it's Edelou's father, Austin, the weird god warrior <laughs> person, fighty, awful garbage man <laughs> is shooting at them from outside the house. Um, and tucker ends up like they he goes out and ends up like getting him down and calling the cops this is like a real turning point in tucker and caroline's relationship i mean it really is like from before this after this is really when they become friends it Mm -hmm. it really bonds the the escaping death together really really does it yeah they're trauma bonded now Which we know from all of the media that we consume, we know that that's the beginning of a lasting relationship. <laughs> worked in speed. Exactly. It can work anywhere else. <laughs> exactly. Um, the next morning, a black man, Toby March, shows up at Caroline's house and she is alarmed by a new person. Totally not racist, just alarmed that there's a new man at her house. And he's like, oh, Tucker didn't tell you, like, I'm a handyman and he asked me to come fix your windows. And so, like, you know, Tucker is helping out and taking care of business, but not passing along important messages. We also meet um, the FBI pathologist who's coming out to work on this case. This guy named Teddy, who is, like, a lunatic of the highest order, and I love him. Love him. (laughs) love him i think he's my favorite character (laughs) he does like morgue pranks like he (laughs) he puts like he like electrifies bodies so that they'll like shake when people come in and be like he he like learns ventriloquism just to like scare people in the morgue and i should say like when we say people his major like goal in all of this is to fuck with Burns specifically, yeah. which makes it even better. Yeah. Yes, he's like I hate special agent asshole, and he's stuck with me because I'm the best pathologist ever, and I'm going to make him suffer for it. Mm-hmm. I this is something that I love that Nora does in so many of her books is that the people in her stories find like their true calling in life, and they're like really happy and fulfilled in their jobs. And Teddy is like. I was born to be a murder guy. Like I, this is my true calling in life. My destiny was to become a pathologist. And um, and he loves his work. I mean, I love a guy who loves his work. He just, he just is really fulfilled and creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's got a really dark sense of humor that he complains that like no, none of his like friends or ex-wives ever really like clicked with the fact that his sense of humor is so dark you know who does click with his dark sense of humor (laughs) josie (laughs) they were almost like soulmates (laughs) yes yes and truly that's why when they got together i was like oh i guess maybe josie's just like a real true crime fan i don't know (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> she's a true crime larper. <laughs> true crime larper. That's wonderful. <laughs> so Teddy's in town now, and and they can further the investigation because Agent Burns got there first, and he was mad that they had to like wait for Teddy, and also just mad in general because that's like his personality trait. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, things are happening in town. Susie and Burke, the sh- you know the sheriff family, they're having a party, and we cut back to Darlene, Edda's best friend, who is also horny is and mad. Like those are kind of her characteristics. Is like she is cheating on her husband with this guy Billy T. Bonnie, and she doesn't feel bad about that at all. But she is like very mad about not being invited to this party, and mad that like people in town look down on her. And she's mad at Tucker. And so we're getting like this POV. So the other important thing about that is that she's she's mad. She specifically thinks that Tucker killed Etta Lou and that no one cares and no one's looking into it and no one's going to avenge Etta Lou, which she says to her her secret boyfriend, Billy T., and is like, oh, like if only someone would avenge Etta Lou for me and do something about Tucker, I'd basically do whatever sex act they wanted. Oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, good to know. But yeah. Then at the party next door, we've got Caroline and Tucker starting to flirt more. We've got age special agent asshole being very mad that Tuck- that Caroline is like flirting with Tucker and doesn't want to sit there and listen to him talk about all of her performances she's ever given. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we've got Josie seducing Teddy and fucking in the morgue. Yes. At first, I was like, because she gets him to tell her about Edelou, and like that's how she learns Edelou wasn't pregnant. And I was like, oh, is she like just doing this to get info? But I think it was both like horniness and information seeking. Yeah, no, she was into it. This was the first point where I was like, oh, uh, Josie's on my suspect list because like even even like getting the information that Edelou wasn't pregnant. Like, I was like, why is she here? Like, yes, maybe she's just horny for Morks. It happens. But, like, it does seem like the inclusion of this specific scene means that something about this is important. And I was like, could it just be that she was getting the information that Etta Lou was pregnant? But then Tucker gets that in the next scene anyway. So -hmm. this means something else. And that was, like, the first part where i pinned her up on my murder board as a suspect my mental murder board i didn't actually make one that would have been cool though i i was like <laughs> about to be super impressed. like oh my gosh you make a murder board for every like thriller that you read that's so cool yeah with red Show yarn your vision boards <laughs> it's it's just in it's just in our mind palaces okay <laughs> they would make great instagram posts though just <laughs> <laughs> true yeah, before we started, I was complimenting. If you guys aren't following Romancing the Shelf on Instagram, their Instagram game over there is like really strong and they, they do make like not quite a vision board, but like visual representations of the books and like fun games and stuff that that we are we do not do. But yeah, maybe we should start making a little murder boards. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so after Josie fucks Teddy in the morgue, mm-hmm. uh, we see that Belly T has decided to tamper with Tucker's car. The next day we have like church interlude and we sort of meet some new people in the town and we like check in on the town's three churches and through the and they're all like praying for Etta Lou and we get like a rundown of the Haddinger family, which is we already know Austin, who's the abusive, like, oh no, Duarte, no. <sighs> Who's the 
Austin, who's the abusive um, religious zealot dad. And then the mom is Mavis, who like is the victim of abuse and a pretty passive role in the family. And then the older son is Vernon, who's like mean and sticks with Austin. And notably, like, isn't as religious, but is just like a jerk. And then Etta Lou, who's dead. And then their other daughter, Ruth Ann, who just like is checked out and wants to get out of this town immediately. And then their um, sad younger son, Cy, who's 14, and he seems like a nice boy. And side note, I believe that he is gay, but that doesn't come up. <laughs> and and we meet them. And we also – so we've previously met Toby March the Handyman. And Cy is BFFs and maybe in love with his son, Jim March. They have, like, a very tight friendship slash love. They're secret BFFs because they can't – like – Austin is very racist, and so he would never let his son be friends with a black kid. So yes, they, they are secret best friends. I think in this view of the Hattingers, it's important to note, like, so Austin is this really abusive and domineering man. His son, Vernon, doesn't have the same, like, religious belief in things. He just uses it as an excuse to be mean, and he is repeating the same cycle of abuse with his wife. Um, Mm -hmm. We just see little pieces of that come through. Yeah, I will say that Vernon also ended up on my murder board, my mental murder board, because of the multiple times that it was stressed, like, oh, yeah, like, he's also violent and terrible and whatever, but it's just because he likes it, not because of God. And I was like, hmm, that sounds like maybe a person who would murder three women who were, quote unquote, sluts. I kind of feel like that's too much work for Vernon. He's a much more lazy bully. Yeah. There were a couple other, I almost wish I had been reading the text, because there were a couple other places as the book went on where it seemed like heavily hinted, like even before it reaches a point where Tucker is like, I bet Vernon did it. But before that, even there's like places where like it's put clearly hinted at in the text that this is a possibility. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that I was not 100% on board with it was because he doesn't have a speaking scene until like three quarters of the way through the book. So like, it wasn't going to be him, but it was, it was well, well planted as a possibility. Yeah. The, the pacing of this book, I will say is a little, well, there's so much, there's so many characters. There's so much like exposition of the town, but like so much just happens at this like breakneck pace at like the last two chapters or something. Cause this middle section is like pretty easy to summarize. I like, I think we can plow through a couple of these chapters pretty quick so we learn all of this about all of the citizens of the town mostly the hattingers and then and the churches and then burke comes by after church to tell tucker that edelou wasn't actually pregnant and he is so angry slash relieved about it that he like needs to drive very very fast so he gets in his car to do that. And also Josie comes by to tell him the same thing, but he's already learned it and he's already so mad. He's like, you have to go away. Like, I need to like be drive angrily in order to release my emotions because I'm a man. He has to go live his life a quarter mile at a time. Yes. <laughs> but as he's doing this, um, he's driving towards Caroline's house. And he goes to, like, hit a curve in the road when, like, his steering isn't working. And then his brakes aren't working. And he slams into Caroline's mailbox and, like, ends up, like, very beaten up and with a concussion and, like, whatever. And she helps him out of the car. And 
she like starts nagging him about how like oh like i can't believe this i told you this when you first like drove bad like that that you were gonna do this one day and i can't believe it and he's like no like i'm a good driver something was wrong and then they come junior who is darlene the best friend of Edda Lou who asked her secret boyfriend to do this you know attempted murder on tucker he comes by he's like this is so weird you're a real good driver like it's weird that this would happen someone probably tampered with your car we'll look into <laughs> it mm-hmm yes he's a mechanic um tucker and caroline here like kind of also start to bond and have a little bit of like a hurt comfort moment too well like she's mad at him but she's also like worried about him and then he quotes hamlet and she's like oh my god you've read a book like <laughs> the so bar is so low <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and then lil lil Sai walks 10 miles in the in the vicious summer heat to ask at sweetwater for a job and um tucker at first wants to say no because he's like so young and skinny and because like sai is the son of this man who is so nasty to him but then he he gets a sense that sai is like abused and he feels bad and so he's really sweet and like makes him breakfast and offers him a a, like a man of all work job (laughs) and his first task is to have him like fix up this old bicycle and then he gives him the bicycle and it's it's like a really sweet moment of tucker and Caroline also is impressed with that. He can read books and he's nice to children. What more can a lady ask for? Honestly. <laughs> she doesn't even know about the computer yet at this point. Can you or believe? Or the glasses. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Agent Burns comes by because now he thinks Toby March is a, the, the black handyman who is fixing Caroline's windows. He thinks maybe Toby is a suspect and everyone's like, no. Agent Burns again creeps on Caroline. Not everyone doesn't think yeah, that Toby true. like all the all the good characters. Yes, oh. all the quote unquote good characters. Also, J- Josie doesn't think that Toby did it. True. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all the good characters and the actual murderer don't think that Toby. <laughs> Who also edges kind of more towards good characters than bad characters, despite being a murderer. It's complicated. <laughs> true. true. She's a murderer, but she's not racist. It's true. Truth. Uh, <laughs> then is then it's Edelou's funeral, and Austin uses this as an excuse to escape from police custody, which is grim. He like shoves a cop into Edelou's open grave, and, and his wife, and his own, and, oh yeah, wife. And, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I feel so sorry for Edelou in this scene because even her own funeral isn't about her. Yeah, like yeah. that moment should be hers, but it wasn't. No, no, and he it's just like the whole thing is just such a farce, and it's just like really it really kind of compounds like you kind of Edelou is is kind of terrible to Tucker and to other folks in this brief time we see her when she's alive and hear about her previous exploits, but like hearing about the Hattinger family in general about like how everyone acts at her funeral, that how her own father pretends to be sad isn't actually sad she's dead but pretends to be sad so that he'll have an excuse to escape is just such a bummer yeah he sucks but he does escape he gets both the police officers guns and their vehicle and hightails it out of there and meanwhile at caroline's house jim has once again like come over to help his father do work on her house uh, and previously, he had been doing that previously, which is what gave Sai the idea to get a job. And he wants to, like, 
seem like really cool and like adult. So he's going to ask her if he can, if he and his father should fix this other thing, which she hasn't noticed is even broken. But when she tells him to wait in the parlor for a minute and he's like, oh, well, you know, it'll just be a second. I'll go look at her cool violin. And in the midst of it, he gets totally carried away by how much he's like in love with this instrument. So Caroline lets him play it, which is not her normal style. Normally she's very protective of it, but she can see like how I love Jim. <laughs> I love Jim. Yeah. I love Jim and Clive both. I love Jim in this moment. Like Caroline is watching how genuinely like in awe of this instrument he is and how much fun he is having getting to play it. And she's like, oh, right. That's what's good about playing the violin. So she offers that she'll teach him how to play classical music if he'll teach her how to play all of the like fun songs that he learned how to play on the fiddle and it's just very sweet yeah they both have like sweet moments with these with these young boyfriends yes and And she also decides she's when she hears that austin escaped she's like all right i need to get a guard dog and i need to start practicing shooting again so she goes to get like this puppy from someone in town that is like a fucking tiny golden retriever puppy who does not she's like oh like this is a bad idea like he's not gonna be a good guard dog i can't take him with me on tour like i shouldn't do this and then of course she like adopts him and buys him a million things and names him useless mm-hmm. golden retrievers make such bad guard dogs because in my experience all the golden retrievers i've known they're just like oh my gosh you have hands that you can pet me with this is the best day <laughs> of your life they are not afraid of, like, anyone. <laughs> yes. A new friend has entered the house in the middle of the night through the window. <laughs> uh, she also has – there's this, like, great scene where she's talking to – I I think it's Darlene's mother, Happy, about what happened at the funeral so she can get, like, the lowdown. And as they're talking about it and, like, all of this comedy of errors of people falling into the grave and all this stuff happening. They're acknowledging that it's this horrible, terrible thing, but they also can't stop laughing about it. Mm-hmm. And the two of them just sit there having these, like, hysterical this hysterical laughter they're so embarrassed about, but they can't stop laughing. And I did like that scene as well. It was a good one. It was a – I think it really shows Caroline bonding with the women in the town and being accepted as part of the community. Yes. And also it was hilarious. It was hilarious. <laughs> this is very good. The funniest funeral scene ever, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. More like chat and chew gossip times. Josie goes and gossips with Crystal and she realizes this is like so convoluted. Josie had lost a lipstick. She realizes Darlene has that very same lipstick and it's like a fancy like gold case lipstick. So she knows like Darlene wasn't buying a fancy lipstick and she had spilled her purse near Tucker's car. And so she deduces that Billy T. Bonnie was also near Tucker's car sabotaging it. Also picked up this used lipstick and gave it to his girlfriend. And so she like figures that out. Meanwhile, Tucker goes to tell this information that he got from Josie to Burke, the sheriff. Meanwhile, Junior sees Billy T with Darlene, who, as you'll recall, Junior and Darlene are married. Billy T is like the piece on the side. Junior hits Billy T with a frying pan and Darlene is, is like, oh, yes, this was not consensual. Definitely messy. Very messy. Mm hmm. 
Meanwhile, there's some like devastating stuff with Sai and Austin where like Sai is still terrified of his father, Austin, and Austin is telling him all this like dark, like biblical, like eye for an eye shit and like honor your father. And he is basically like terrorizing Sai into helping him get revenge on Tucker. <sighs> yeah, so then it's it's just really terrible. He, you know, basically says, like, if you don't help, I'll kill you. Uh, you have to bring me food every day. You have to do this. You have to do that. And it's especially like Sai, prior to getting caught by his father, is thinking as he's like getting ready to go to work at Sweetwater that like he's so excited. These are all the things he's going to do with the money. Like this is all the stuff he's going to be able to do now. He doesn't have to worry about his father. So it's really kind of devastating. Yeah. And also at this point, Tucker goes and kicks Billy T in the balls because he's like, I know Mm -hmm. you fucked up my car. Why is Billy T out roaming around when he's been like accused of rape? Did they just, I can't remember. Did they decide he, he didn't, wasn't trying to rape Darlene? They said no one was going to fresh charges on either side. Yeah, sure. I do also think it's, it's very clearly a situation where everyone is like, yes, he wasn't actually, like, that's not what was actually happening. Yeah. It was like a but wink and a nod. Like, yeah, 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 he broke into the house. He, But everybody knew, except for Junior. Yeah. <laughs> so you would think Junior would make more of a fuss about it. But you know what? There's like 10,000 other things going on, um, such as Agent Burns is now interviewing Darlene. And by the way, we do see him being like really slimy here. And he's like, she's like, wait, shouldn't I have a lawyer? Like, don't trust a cop, guys. He's very like, you don't need a lawyer if you don't have anything to hide. And like PSA from me to you, always get a lawyer, Darlene. Always get a lawyer, listeners. But she doesn't. And she tells him all this like backstory info dump about how Austin Haddinger always hated Bo Longstreet because he wanted to marry Bo's life, Madeline, but obviously didn't and married this other poor woman, Mavis, instead. But he's always had this grudge and he's always just been like the worst and he's been racist and he like took it out on Toby March for some like fake little crime. And like Toby has this big scar in his face from like, Austin, like I don't even remember what, but like doing something scar worthy. And so Agent Burns gets all this, like, next-level backstory about the rivalry between these two families. Yeah. And we get to um, Caroline picks up her gun lessons again. And there's a lot of, like, nosing in on Caroline's personal life from Agent, Special Agent Asshole, who's like, oh, well, like, Tugger's a murderer, so, like, don't fuck him. You should fuck me. I care about classical music. And (laughs) at this point... We also learned that Austin's plan is to get Cy to ask Tucker to drive him home with his bike and lead him to the culvert where he's keeping the bike so that Austin can murder him. And he, like, threatens to, like, carve out Cy's eyes if he doesn't. So Cy, like, tries to go along with it, but Tucker can see something's wrong. And before he gets to the culvert, he makes Tucker stop the car and confesses to everything so Tucker goes to the cops and everyone is suddenly doing a, you know, full size manhunt to try and find Austin. He's already left the culvert because he's on his way to kill Caroline. But luckily, Caroline has had all of these gun lessons from Susie. So she does eventually manage to shoot him after mm-hmm. some very realistic, like not being prepared and not hitting him and all sorts of stuff. 
Yeah, but like luckily, luckily, time's on her side because Austin has a gun also because first world innocence is everyone has a gun, but he <laughs> intentionally is not using the gun. He wants to use the knife because he says it has to be like at a loo, which this like insistence on using the knife really for everyone in town is like, oh, yeah, he's he's the knife guy like this. He must have been the murderer. That and the insistence that it has to be like at a loo, I think yeah. was the other thing was that they were like, oh, like we get it like it has to be the same way because he's the murderer and that means something to him yeah tucker and caroline finally have sex in chapter 19 that's my plot point for that it's (laughs) (laughs) and it's very like tucker is like oh no caroline's still emotionally closed off but like it's a whole thing yeah, he's really upset that he can't. He's finally ready to be emotional with a woman and she doesn't want to be emotional with him and he's bummed. But also Burns comes by to talk to her and like kind of slut shames her and then is going to go to Sweetwater to talk to Sai. So Tucker has to leave so that he can be there for Sai. And after Sai tells Tucker every, or tells Burns everything about his father being a dick, where even it's like the one time we get a little hint of agent burns humanity because as sai is like describing all of these terrible things that his father did to him like you can see we get to see burns also kind of like reacting like ah shit man like this is a little kid jesus christ yeah yeah but then that humanity is immediately erased well not erased but like off the table because josie comes out wearing nothing but like a negligee or something and essentially like climbs on top of him and rubs herself all over him yeah and she and this is the i was telling kate i was like oh i don't know maybe true crime fans are just like this because she is like literally (laughs) actively giving him a blowjob while he's describing the murder to him and she's like yeah oh well that's later this is this this is is when he's still questioning sai and she just comes out oh yeah but this is the same chapter yeah I jumped ahead to that part for obvious reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's maybe true crime fans just want to give a guy a blowjob while he describes what it's like to investigate a serial killer. I was like, no. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, not the lesbians, obviously, but. um... Yeah, but also Tucker takes Cy fishing to kind of get his mind off everything and sort of like adopts him, tells him Mm -hmm. that he intends to adopt him, like finds out that Cy really loves school. But he's, like, ashamed to say it because it's not cool to be in a school. That's a rhyme I did for you there. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I'm not too cool for school. I'm exactly as cool as school. Uh, So Tucker is kind of like, all right, well, whatever you want to do, like, if you want to, like, live at Sweetwater still with me. Because after Austin escaped, Cy started living at Sweetwater to protect him. You know, if you want to live here, like, that's fine. Like, we'll still take care of you. We'll still feed you. Like, you'll, you can still do the work that we need, but we'll make sure you have everything you need. And then if, like, you want to go to college or something, like, maybe we could pay for that. Like, whatever you want to do in life, we're here to support you. So he kind of becomes a dad to this kid, which is very, very sweet. Mm-hmm. Darlene at this point is still mad that like you know her boyfriend, her secret boyfriend is gone. Her husband won't have sex with her because he's mad at her. She has to take care of a baby, so she's not, like, getting any sex anywhere. Yeah, quote from Darlene. By her calculations, Darlene had been celibate for more than a week. It wasn't healthy. (laughs) 
Yeah, her sex drive is a driving force of this book. So she she decides that she's going to leave the baby at her mother's house and then, like, essentially, like, seduce Junior if it's the last thing she does. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. that doesn't get to be the last thing she does because on her way home from her mother's house, the weather's really bad and the road is blocked by a car that is familiar to her. And then the person in the car, it's Josie, drags her into the woods <laughs> to murder her. At this point in the book, we don't know that it's Josie yet. So it's very like, oh, it's you. It's Josie. Anyway, yeah, murdered. Uh, Tucker and Caroline fight. Caroline's mom calls and is just like super bitchy about how Caroline's getting involved with this murder in this small town and it made the news and she's embarrassed. And Caroline's like, you didn't even like ask how I'm doing. Tucker and Caroline fight, but then they also like agree that they like want each other and want to be emotionally open with each other and then have like good emotional sex. Yeah. And then her mom calls and ruins it and melts their ice cream. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Which then I'm still mad about Caroline for that, too, because then she dumps the melted ice cream down the sink instead of just drinking it like ice cream soup, like a normal person would do. Like a normal person. like (laughs) Yeah, it it was infuriating. So much privilege, Caroline. (laughs) Okay, then the town, then at this point, Darlene is officially missing and the town is looking for Darlene. While they're all all out searching the town, Tucker talks to Dwayne and is like concerned that he's drinking so much. And Dwayne is like, honestly, a little concerned too, but like doesn't like talking about it. So they uh, like physically fight and tussle and fall into the pond where they like fall into Darlene's body in the pond, which is gross. And then they you know they call the police and there's a whole thing of like now it's a crime scene josie is not reacting appropriately in the point of view of tucker or like most normal people because she's just like oh i don't like i don't care what happened to this slut i just care that like it was upsetting for my brothers and everyone's like that's bad that's a bad take josie (laughs) yeah that was the point where josie like went to the very very tippy top of my murder board Right. And this is where you know that the person, I mean, you don't know it's Josie right then, but the, whoever it is, is like kind of gone off the rails of their desire to murder because clearly like everyone thought it was Austin. Like if you just wanted to wrap it up, be like, okay, I got away with it. This would be the point. But she's like, right. nope, still want to murder. Let's do it. And then when you do find out it's just, like she brought that body back to her house. Like yeah. she brought it to her backyard. You, yeah, not a if smart you're plan. a murderer, you know, like you don't bring it back to your house. You don't murder where you live. Yeah, no <laughs> shit where you eat. A lot of murderers murder where they live, and um, but that's how they get caught. You don't murder where you live. It's 1991. Josie didn't have access to like Reddit and podcasts yet. She's <laughs> true, true, flying true. solo. Um. Anyway, then reporters come to talk to Caroline and like bother her about like being this famous musician involved in the small town murder. And so then she goes to say it's Sweetwater with Tucker. Totally safe place. They haven't yeah. found totally. any bodies at Sweetwater. Yeah, no problem. Here, Tucker and Caroline find like again make love and like are intimate now that they're like together at Sweetwater. And then the town is all like getting ready for Fourth of July and like carnival and parade. And there's a few paragraphs where everyone's like, "Should we still do Fourth of July? Because all the murderers maybe feels in poor taste." And everyone's like, "Yeah, but we already like paid the deposit for the carnival, so like, like America, of course we should." <laughs> yeah, 
So that's happening. By the way, I think we haven't even mentioned that cousin Lulu has arrived and she's this like eccentric deep Southern character who like just reads differently now than in 1991. Cause she is like fully wearing Confederate flag pants. Oh my and gosh, if you look at that pain. now, you're like, Ooh. you know, and she is very much about like her proud Confederate heritage and like the war of aggression, like nor war of Northern aggression, like blah, blah, blah. Where in 1991 and you're reading this as a white person, maybe you're like, Oh, this is kind of funny. And now you're like, Oh, somehow too soon. (laughs) (laughs) It will always be too soon. Yeah. (laughs) Cousin Lulu. Sorry. While we're talking about how problematic cousin Lulu is, she is wearing her Confederate flag pants proudly, and she's all about her Southern heritage. But then she's also, at one point, like, dressed up like a Native American in a headdress, and she's like, I am exploring my Native American heritage. And I'm like, girl, pick your heritage and stop being so weird about it. But she's she has all the heritage. As a true privileged white person, <laughs> she has all the heritage. It is all hers. Yeah. Yes, it's rough. Yeah. So now we get to like here here's where I don't I don't think we'll probably talk about it for long, but just like heads up, like we're gonna go deep into the weird racist C plot of this book, which comes to a head here, which is where now that Darlene is dead and they know Austin didn't do the murders, Billy T of the affair with Darlene trying to kill Tucker fame of this book has decided that only a black person could be doing these murders. And so mm-hmm. it's very clearly Toby March and that he and his drunk idiot white friends need to go lynch him and his family. Which by the way, a side note, I mean, traditionally like the Southern U S is majority black population, or at least like larger black population than the North. And yet the Marches do seem to be the only black family in town that we know about. And we know a lot of side characters. We can hope that everyone else left. Like this town is awful. (laughs) And it is like, there are other black people in town because we do get like a couple other glimpses into black background characters. And we, we learned about the black church in town, but like, Oh, that's right. We did have that. None of them are named. Yeah. Toby and his family are the only ones who are of any substance to the plot whatsoever. And it's just like, it it just feels, this is not the place to have something this serious in this book. And by the way, it's not even necessary. There's already so many misdirects and other things happening. Like this whole thing could have been cut out and had a perfectly fine book. But I do think that in 1991, Nora probably felt like this is like, progressive and like taking a stand of some sort but it's just like it's not it Nora yeah that's the thing is I think this is the attempt to address the very overt racism that's in the book but now we see all the more like covert and systemic racism as we read the book that doesn't get addressed whatsoever and so it feels like off balance and not just doesn't work yeah. And when when this lynching happens, Tucker and Co like ride up and save the day. They stop it from happening and they like get the garden hose and put out the burning cross on their front yard. And as this is happening, Billy T I think gets arrested. It's very nebulous, but the other men kind of like they lose their like their crazed like violent tendency and it's like they like wake up from this day and they're like, "Oh, well, I'm just going to head home." And everyone's like, okay, bye. See you on Sunday at church. See you at the the 4th of July parade. I'm like, no, 
That's not how life doesn't just go on. But apparently, it. I mean, we are living in 2022. Life just goes on. And I will say, actually, some of them do get arrested because I think the line specifically says that, like, Billy T and, like, his friends are being read their rights by Burke. So I don't mm-hmm. know if it's everyone because I think there is that one guy who, like, definitely is just like, nah, I'm not going to rape a woman. Peace. I'm gone. Yes. Um, yeah, there was that one guy who noped out. Um, and then there was the guy at the beginning who, like, was maybe the – almost more infuriating than Billy T who like went to Dwayne and was like, Oh, like they're all going to lynch Toby. And Dwayne's like, we'll go tell the sheriff. He's like, I can't tell the sheriff. They're my friends. Yeah. He's like, somebody should do something about this. Okay. Bye. Yeah. Yes. But they do. It is. It's a, obviously like for me as a white person, it's a very hard scene to read. I cannot imagine how difficult it must be for a black person to read this scene, but it's, it's just completely unnecessary in this book. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so let's move on. That happened back to 4th of July. Yeah, like, literally well, the next chapter. <laughs> get in, in the mood to party. And I will say, like, the carnival scene is overall, like, pretty charming. Mm-hmm. There's, like, little Cy wins the pie-eating contest, and Caroline plays violin with some of the local musicians. And then we do have, like, random murderer POV who's just like the murderer is like stalking the carnival yeah there is and we get you know we get a lot of cute like interactions about like the rides and stuff um actually the pie eating contest and all that is the next day because between the carnival and the parade day that is when agent burns decides that Dwayne might have had something to do with it and brings him in for questioning because they discover that the woman who was murdered in Nashville, who they keep talking about, like, oh, like, there's this other murder out of town that might be connected, looks just like his ex-wife and was working at the bar where his ex-wife's new boyfriend plays with his band and was murdered while Dwayne was in Nashville to see his kids. And a night that his ex-wife was at that bar. So it's it's like bad news for Dwayne. And he thinks because he gets blackout drunk so much, he starts to think maybe he did do it. He's really nervous. And Tucker's like, no, no, no. Like, we're going to get you a lawyer. It's going to be fine. Like, you didn't do this. I know you wouldn't do this. Like, you're Dwayne. Like, you can't kill things. I've known you my whole life. Like, we're going to figure this out. And meanwhile, like all these other festivities are going on and there's going to be a parade. Burns once again tries to tell Caroline, like, well, you're living at Sweetwater, but you're living with a murderer. And she thinks he's talking about Tucker, Mm -hmm. at which point Tucker eventually tells her, like, they think Dwayne did it. And she's like, oh, that seems wrong. And he's like, yeah. Uh, So she does play the violin with everyone. And then she goes to put her violin away before the fireworks and overhears Josie telling Dwayne, she sees Dwayne with a knife and she can't initially hear what they're saying. But then they're very vaguely talking about like Dwayne being like, I can't keep the secret anymore. Like I have to tell him like, and Josie being like, no, it's fine. I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Like, give me the knife. I'll take care of it. You just go back and enjoy the party and he never has to know. So of course, Caroline interprets this as Dwayne's doing murders and Josie's covering it up. So she goes up to talk to Josie to say like, hey, like, I think that like together we need to tell Tucker about this. And then realizes that it is in fact Josie who is the killer. Yes. And then we get this like villain monologue info dump where 
it turns out at a relatively young age, Josie overheard her mom talking to housekeeper Della about how Josie was actually born as a product of Austin's rape of her. And so this is very problematic concept. She has like evil blood from Austin. And I think the implication is maybe has inherited whatever non-diagnosed mental illness that Austin has. Like she has it too, but it's a lot. I will say too, that when Austin was reliving the rape of the Longstreet matriarch, whose name I can't remember, I did wonder, because I couldn't remember what order the kids were born in. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to think back to it. And I was like, okay, well, like, my thought was that Tucker was actually his actual son. Oh. And that that was going to come out, especially because, like, the other two kids are so, like, flighty. And it was like, ah, like. Oh, yeah. He is the odd duck by being responsible yes. secretly. Um, but no, then it turns out that it's it's Josie because she's the murderer. Mm-hmm. I think it's also, like, if we look at Austin's family, he has four kids, I think four. It's yeah. Vernon, Etta Lou, um, Luella. Ray Ann or something. Ruth Ann. It's a two name. Ruth Ann. Ruth Ann and Cy. And Ruth Ann and Cy both seem like they're normal. Vernon and, and Etta Lou were, you know, you know. Problematic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, Vernon, Vernon was violent. Etta Lou was just, like, horny and greedy. I have to say, there was a part where um, Cy is thinking about his family. I think he, like, says that, like, Etta Lou, when their dad would get violent with Etta Lou, she would get violent right back to him. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, there was obviously some trauma going on in that whole the Hattinger household. Um, but Josie, I think she she was like, that guy is evil. And it, she used it as kind of like a, a way of being, like, excusing her own evilness, that she she was born this way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, it's very, it's very early 90s. Like, ah, uh, you're the, the child of a killer. So you too must be a killer kind of nonsense, which again, not to fucking spoil the fifth screen movie, but <laughs> what, can, how is that still a thing that we're letting happen in 2021? Okay. I'm done. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, yeah, it's it's very, you know, she she goes on her evil villain monologue about how, you know, she had to kill these women and how, you know, it's not her fault. Like her mother never loved her the way she should because she was, you know, Austin's daughter and all this stuff. And so she she does uh, shoot herself and also stab Caroline. Mm-hmm. But a survivable stab. Yes. Because then Tucker and Caroline, of course, can, you know, move past all of this terrible stuff after Tucker takes a couple days away to, like, deal with his grief. But they still are in love and can be together. And Tucker's willing to come on the road with Caroline sometimes and go see her play. Which was, I was afraid at one point that it was going to be like, Caroline gives up performing altogether. Uh and, And I'm glad that didn't happen. But yeah, this is all literally the last chapter. Like, this all happens so fast after this, like, relatively leisurely pace. And it's like, ah! Yeah, it's, it's, the the wrap-up is, is, is insanely fast. Seven pages to go from, oh my god, Josie's a murder and she's dead, to let's get married and live happily ever after, the end. <laughs> yeah, I did have to rewind, because I got to that part, like, as I was brushing my teeth. And I was only, like, half listening, because, like, the toothbrush 
toothbrush vibration with my bad ear. I was like, I can't hear anything but the sound of my teeth being brushed. And then I put it down and it was like Tucker, like three days later being like, no, like I still love you. And I was like, oh, I missed something. (laughs) (laughs) Not really. Um, Okay, so that's the end. And it is partly like partly we tried to pick up the pace because the podcast is running long, but also mainly the pacing is wild here. I feel like this was when it was written in the early 90s. So Nora was kind of transitioning from being like the the silhouette straight romance author into writing these thrillers. And so she spends all of her time writing the thriller part the mystery part and developing that storyline and so she's like oh by the way here's the romance here's a romantic happy ending goodbye and so uh, you can tell that her interest in this story was on the murderer part the the mystery and and um kind of violent aspect of it and she just kind of wove through this romantic plot line to kind of pull in like her reading audience at that point and you could just she wrapped it up too quick, which I think is something that happens a lot in the early 90s is that she's having to wrap up her romance um, storylines really quickly after the murder reveal. So it it was a theme in the 90s. Yeah, I do think having read a bunch of the, her thrillers from more recent times, like it does feel mm-hmm. like she's gotten better at balancing. I mean, as a person who's like, I would read the thriller without the romance. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't mind much but like it, it does feel in, in some of the newer books that she has definitely like realized like okay like this needs to be balanced like them solving the mystery isn't the end of the story like also I have to tie up all of these great characters that I've created but we're here in 1991 and let's move into our dramatic readings and give everyone a little taste of this book and I think Heidi is going to kick us off with that and it's just gonna be caroline arriving at sweetwater because so much of this i feel like this page kind of is like summarizes some of my discomfort with part of the book is how she views sweetwater all right caroline was so stunned by sweetwater that she stopped her car halfway up the drive to stare the house was pearly white in the afternoon sun all gracious curves and delicate ironwork, slender columns, and glinting windows. It took no imagination at all to picture women in hoop skirts strolling across the grass or gentlemen in frock coats sitting on the porch discussing the possibility of succession while silent black servants served cool drinks. Flowers grew everywhere, climbing up trellises, spilling over the border of brick-edged beds. The heady smell of gardenia, magnolia, and roses perfumed the air. A Confederate flag, faded and ragged at the edges, hung from a white pole in the center of the front lawn. Beyond the house, she could see neat stone buildings. What once were slave quarters, smokehouse, summer kitchen, she could guess that much. The lawn stretched back to acre after acre of flat, fertile land thick with cotton. She saw a single tree in the center of one of the fields, a huge old cypress left standing either through laziness or sentiment. For some reason, that, just that single tree, brought tears to her throat. The simple majesty of it, the endurance it symbolized, touched her in some deep corner of her heart. Surely it had stood there for more than a century, watching over the rise and fall of the South, the struggle for a way of life, and the ultimate end of it. How many spring plantings had it seen? How many summer harvests? She shifted her gaze back to the house. It, too, symbolized continuity and change. 
and the stately elegance of the Old South that so many from the North thought of as indolence. Babies had been born there, grown up and died there, and the rhythm of this quiet spot on the Delta went on and on. The slow pulse of their culture and traditions survived. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. There's just so much in that that I uh, had trouble with. And uh, there's just no no thought of uh, the negatives. So <laughs> No. Yeah, a lot to unpack that is actually just still up in the attic. <laughs> still in the attic yeah all right i'm going to go next and i'm going to read a little bit about tucker inviting Sai to live at sweetwater and you know one of the genuinely funny parts of the book now i'm thinking you could keep working for me part-time when school starts up again part of your pay could go to your ma to help her out and i could add room and board something swelled in his throat he didn't even recognize it as hope you mean I could move into Sweetwater? For good? Until there's somewhere else you'd rather go. If it's something you want, Sai, I'll do what I can to make it happen. Your ma would have to agree to it, and there'd probably be some kind of legal work to make it a kind of guardian over you. Uh, you'd have to want it, though. Sai only stared, afraid to hope so much. I'd do anything you told me. I wouldn't cause you trouble. We'll look into it. I guess I'd better come up with some rules so you can see what you're getting into. To give Sai some time to compose himself, he heaped more pate on a cracker. If he'd done nothing else right this day, he'd taken the boy's mind off of his misery. No drinking till you're of age. No, sir. No wild parties unless you invite me. A chuckle escaped Sai, and the sound had him blinking. No, sir. No flirting with it, my woman. Women, he corrected himself silently. He'd meant women, hadn't he? But he was thinking of Caroline. Sai's color rose again. No, sir. And I won't flirt with yours. He winked at the boy and grinned. Got yourself a girl, do you, Sai? No, sir. Not exactly. I just look sometimes, is all. You got plenty of time to do more than look. Any girl in particular? Sai wet his lips. There was no way he could lie to Tucker. It wasn't fear, he realized. Not the way it had been with his father. It was love. I, uh, well, I kind of look at Leon Hardsty. She grew breasts last year. It sure does make a difference. Tucker choked on the pate. By Christ, it does, he agreed. He tiptoed into the boggy ground. You're just looking? Well, face burning, Sai ducked his head. Once in the lunch line, she was behind me and somebody shoved her. Her breast pushed up against my back. They sure were soft. And she put her arms around my waist a minute just to get her balance back. And I, he swallowed the shame. I couldn't help it, Mr. Tucker. I just couldn't stop it no matter what. Tucker had an image of Sai tossing Leanne Hardsty down on the tiles of the cafeteria and tearing in. What wasn't you couldn't stop? Well, you know, it just happens sometimes no matter how I try to stop it. It just gets, you know, the tool of Satan. The tool of Satan, Tucker repeated slowly. He would have laughed. In fact, he was damn sure he would have rolled on the ground and laughed fit to kill if Sai hadn't had that guilt-stricken look in his eyes. Austin Hattinger strikes again, Tucker thought, and blew out a long breath. I never heard it called that. To hide his grin, Tucker spent a long time stroking his chin. It seems to me the good lord put it between your legs. It had more to do with him than the other one. Evil thoughts and wicked women make it hard. And thank God for it. <laughs> 
Tucker poured more <laughs> lemonade and wished it were bourbon. Listen, son, there isn't a man alive who hasn't had his pecker stiffen up on him at an inopportune moment. It's natural. Sweet, sweet bonding. <laughs> yeah, it's a cute scene, and I really like it. However, I do feel like Sai talking about Leanne's breasts. Like, it gave me such vibes of um, on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Holt, when Holt had to pretend to be straight. And he was like, yes, I love breasts. They are like bags of sand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be able to read this book again without seeing it. <laughs> that, that's just my agenda. All right. I'm going to read just a little sample of what true crime fans are like. <laughs> just, just Josie being a totally normal murderino with our good friend, Agent Burns. <laughs> It's simply a matter of having the experience, the proper equipment. I just love your equipment, she purred, wrapping her fingers around him. Tell me how you did it, Matthew. It just makes me shiver. His breath started to catch as she guided those clever fingers over him. First, you have to understand the psychology of a serial killer, their patterns, the stages, statistics. Most murders are committed on impulse and for a few standard reasons. Tell me. She pressed her lips to his belly. It makes me so hot. Passion, he managed as a red haze coated his vision. Greed, revenge. Those aren't the motives of the serial killer. For him, it's control, power, the hunt. The kill itself isn't as important as the anticipation, the stalking. Yes, she licked gently along his inner thigh. She was doing some stalking of her own, and the anticipation was rising like a hot river in a summer flood. Don't stop. He plans, feeds on the plan. He chooses, and he hunts. All the time he does, he may lead a perfectly normal life. Have a family, a career, friendships, but the need to kill drives him. After he destroys his victim, the need to kill begins to build again. And the desire for control, of course. His hand fisted in her hair as she took him into her mouth, taunting the authorities, even using them. Burns began to pant as she sucked him deep. He may want to be caught. He may even suffer from the guilt. But his hunger outweighs everything. She slid sinuously up his body, straddling him. So he kills again until you stop him. I'll stop there. It goes on a little bit more, but like, <laughs> damn, Josie. <laughs> I didn't like put my hand over my mouth. So I went to the bathroom now. <laughs> like, she didn't. Wow. She's another Nora character that really enjoys her work. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, devoted to it. <laughs> We'll move on to reader's advisory, and we're just going to kind of breeze through this, and um, we'll have more suggestions up on our website, worstbestsellers.com, under reader's advisory. I'm just going to say the show Yellow Jackets, because I do think Josie has Misty Quigley energy, and that's <laughs> all I'm going to say at this time. <laughs> yeah, if you want another Nora recommendation, I right now I would say Sanctuary. I'm reading it right now for our podcast, and it's set in the South, but it's written five years later. So at least so far, how deep I am in it, it ha it's a little less problematic. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. 
have to recommend Midnight in Ruby Bayou by um, Elizabeth Lowell. It's the fourth in her Donovan series. And I was like, it's another like early 90s. It was written in 2010, but it reads early 90s. So go into that like prepared. But it's Mm -hmm. got a Southern setting. It has like some really effed up family situations. And there's also rubies and love. So all the things we, we like. Love it. We've also done lots of more episodes before with lots more recommendations in them. So they're also a good place to go if you're looking for this sort of thing. I'll also say on our readers advisory page, um, we'll definitely have some books written by black authors to counteract all, all of this mess in the middle of this book. Yes. <laughs> so check that out. And uh, we'll move on to The Rock Paper Snicked, where Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book. And I'll say who Wolverine from X-Men would be if he were in this book. And Heidi and Emily can choose which most enhances the book, or they can choose paper, which is to leave the book as is. Okay. Well, if The Rock was in this book, he'd be driving through Mississippi and decide to stop for a couple nights in Innocence. And upon seeing how many, like, ridiculously out-of-control, murdery, racist assholes were in this town, he would help take care of him because, like, seriously, there's a lot of issues in this town that they just seem to be content to let fester. They would, in the end, make him the sheriff, and Burke could, like, take up rock collecting or taking care of his kids and hang out with his wife or something else. You're partially describing the the Dwayne Johnson film Walking Tall. <laughs> That's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, it's a baseball bat. <laughs> uh, and I'm and I'm here for it. <laughs> if, similarly, if Wolverine were in this book, he would be passing through town on one of his solo adventures and he'd stop in for some beer at McGreedy's. He would overhear Billy T trying to start a lynch mob and just straight up stab everyone involved and leave town. Yeah, I mean, for me, the Wolverine just stabbing everyone, that's really doing it for me. I, I got, <laughs> got, especially Billy T. So I've, uh, I feel like that would, that would enhance the book for me. I loved Walking Tall with The Rock. So that would also make things. Burke could like retire or become like the, the deputy sheriff and he could spend more time with Susie because that woman needs help with their boys who are very rambunctious. So True. yeah, both of these, yes, enhance. Uh, all right. Split decision. That's allowed when we do have two guests. Real quick, um, does anyone have a moral of the story? Uh, yeah, I would say my moral of the story is that sometimes the by the book snobby jerk asshole out of towner FBI agent does kind of have a point. <laughs> yeah, we still hate it though. Yeah, right. We mm-hmm. still hate him, but yeah, mine is just PSA. You know, women they can be serial killers too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. equal opportunity, you know, <laughs> opportunity. The, it, it's women should be able to be in positions of authority and be on the investigative team. They can also murder people. It, that's we live in the future. <laughs> that's the rules of feminism. <laughs> uh, my moral is uh, the racist legacy of the American Civil War is perhaps too complicated to be a C plot in a romantic thriller novel. <laughs> Ooh, the, the hard truth. Here they are. <laughs> Um, all right, now it is time for Duarte's Corner, where my cat Duarte will share his opinions about the book. Awesome. (coughs) 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 (coughs)
yeah, Duarte, there was there was some animal violence, which we always hate to see. And I also, I know we were both really upset by the way that everyone in town just refers to catfish as simply cats. And so they're always talking about like catching cats and eating cats. And I just do want to reassure you, they were talking about catfish, but they should be more precise with their language for sure. Super rude. I didn't read like get that until now, but I could see how that could be super offensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to the to the cat community yeah. yes <laughs> yeah. uh, all right well duarte thanks as ever for your opinions do any humans have any closing thoughts oh i like this is i mean obviously like <laughs> there are bad parts but you know it was a good i'm i'm sad now that we've done two of these in a row and now i've got to go read the five love languages or whatever and <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, my closing thought is Heidi and Emily were correct in their impulse to just do a Nora Roberts podcast, but um, <laughs> my, my my closing thought is if you want more Nora cast, go listen to them if you're not already. Yeah, thank you guys so much for inviting us. This has been so much fun. It has, yes, so much fun. Yes, thanks for joining and sharing your expertise. Yeah, it was great. If you guys want to come and find Worst Bestsellers on the socials, we're on facebook and instagram at worst bestsellers we're on twitter at worst bestseller with no s because that actually was thrown into mcnair pond as well and i'm not going in there to get it back out it's nasty in there Uh, we also have a goodreads group that is best accessed by going to our website worstbestsellers.com and clicking on the goodreads link and if you guys want nora all the time Come over and check out our podcast, Romancing the Shelf. We're on all the places that you can find podcasts. And as they so kindly mentioned, we also have an Instagram, which is Romancing the Shelf. We also have some merch at romancingtheshelf.com. So if you would like mugs or sweatshirts or super awesome tote bags, that's where you go to get them. You can find us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon, all of the podcast places where podcasts live. And if you do find us there, if you could take a moment to subscribe and rate and review. When you rate and review, it moves us up further on the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us. If you don't rate and review us, we will be forced to gossip about you in the chat and chew and, you know, spread all sorts of bad rumors about you. <laughs> we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash worst bestsellers, where uh, you can pledge a small monthly recurring donation that goes to us to do things like buy new equipment, uh, pay for our accountants, all sorts of uh, exciting podcast running expenses. And in return, you get perks like postcards and stickers and a newsletter that comes out every month. You can also find merch from our podcast uh, by going to worstbestsellers.com and clicking on where it says merch, where you'll find all sorts of designs from our podcast to wear on your body. And finally, we do have a Discord server where folks can talk about all worst bestsellers related things from cats to bad books to good books to television. And there is a link for that on worstbestsellers.com as well. If you want just me personally, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Renata Snacks. And you can find me sort of on social media at 14 across. I'm still taking kind of a break. All right. And as Kate alluded to earlier, we will be back in two weeks with The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Just getting out of our Nora month and back into our usual bullshit, I guess. (laughs) It's fine. But thanks for listening. Uh, Heidi and Emily, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us.
And we we love you five different ways. And goodbye. Bye. Kate and I were digressing to talk about Tammy Faye Baker.